want to begin by just noting a, a survey that has been done recently by the Ellison Research Group. And they do a survey where they you know, do a statistical analysis and response of a certain segment of the population. And the topic of this survey was what Americans believe about sin. And sin was defined in this survey as something almost always considered wrong, particularly from a religious or moral perspective. 87% of Americans, according to this survey, believe in the concept of sin defined in that way. Well, that sounds pretty good. Well, at least to begin with. Uh, when you begin to examine the particulars of this survey, it doesn't look quite so good. For example, 81% believe that adultery is a sin. 81 sounds pretty good until you realize 19% don't believe that uh, across America. 74% cited racism as a sin. 65% hard drug use. Uh, and number four in percentage basis uh, was not saying anything when a cashier gave you back too much change. Sounds like a pretty trivial thing in a way. I'm not trivial because we want to be obvious, but considering the gravity of some of these other things, it's pretty high on the list. Uh, above having an abortion, by the way, which was only cited as a sin by 56%. Incredible, right? Uh, 52% said it was a sin to not report your entire income on your tax return. Only 52%. Only 47% thought gossip was wrong. Or only 46% said swearing was wrong. And 41% said getting drunk was wrong. You realize the percentages on the other side of that is the majority. 41% said that doing things as a consumer that harmed the environment was sin. I don't really know what that is. Maybe not recycling? I'm not sure. Uh, The only reason I reference that one in particular is it is 41%, and you have to drop down to only 29% believe that telling a lie is sin. So when you just go through those and you think about it, you realize that, well... Surveys don't tell us a whole lot except that our society is a morally bankrupt society. Now, there's still, there is still a concept of sin, and there is still a right and wrong that exists in most people's minds, but their concept of what is sin is very, very lacking. Not nearly adequate enough. You see, sin permeates our culture, permeates our world, permeates through every individual that's ever been born. Uh, Romans 3.10 says uh, that all have sinned. Well, that's, I'm sorry, 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, no one is exempt from the impact of sin in this world. It's not only those who reject Christ, it's not only non-believers who sin, but even God's redeemed children sin. Sometimes it's even hard to tell the difference between a condemned unbelieving sinner and a saved sinner in terms of outward actions. And herein lies the undertone to Satan's temptation of Peter that resulted in his denial of Christ. 
And it all goes back to what we see in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. That's not our text, so just look at it on screen. There we go. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. This is prior to the denial. The Lord says to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he might, that he may sift you as wheat. Well, that's a strange statement, perhaps, at first glance. But let's talk about it. The harvesting of wheat in biblical times involved a three-step process. Uh, beyond actually removing it from the field. The first step was threshing the wheat. The wheat was beaten or it was crushed in a manner that separated the wheat kernel from the chaff and and the unedible parts of the plant. Step two was winnowing, in which they would actually take what was left after the threshing on the threshing floor and they would scoop up what was left because it was all there. You just separated by the crushing and the threshing. So we'd scoop it up and literally fling it up into the air. And the threshing floors were located where there was plenty of airflow or wind blowing. And it would blow away the lighter chaff. And the wheat would settle back to the ground. Now that's step two. Now step three was sifting the wheat. Because there would be some things that were undesirable, that were heavy, that actually fell back down to the floor of the threshing floor, along with the wheat. Although the chaff was blown away, there might be pebbles in there, there might be, you know, stalks, uh, even even things, uh, other plants, not, not wheat. Uh, and so the third step was sifting the wheat, and they literally took a sifter. Now, uh, I, I think most of us understands what a sifter looks like. It's got small holes in it, and you put in dry product, you shake it, and the, the refined product comes out the bottom, the larger impurities are sifted away. So, uh, by the way, we don't sift much anymore. Uh, the commercial flour that we purchase has already been through all of that, uh, whatever they do to it, uh, I suppose some similar process. But that was often done at home years ago when uh, flour was taken from the field to the table. <clears throat> so, Satan says, to Jesus. I want permission to sift Peter as sweet. Now, Peter is, is the leader, undoubtedly, of the twelve. Stands next to Jesus at this moment uh, as far as the ministry they were involved in. And Satan had already gave his best shot at Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, of course, tempting him in the wilderness. And of course, he got nowhere with that. And now, at the very end of the ministry, shortly before the crucifixion and ultimate resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan wants to sift Peter. And what what he is intending to do is try to expose Peter as a fake. Expose, hopefully, in his mind, no doubt, if Peter was truly a person of faith, or was he like Judas, just along for the ride? So uh, the sifting process was very violent and hard, and and it required some physical shaking of the sifter, or the sieve, I guess I should say. And so 
Satan wants to shake Peter up. He wants to stress Peter. He wants to intimidate Peter. He wants to challenge Peter, try Peter, to see if really real faith is left in the end. Would Peter have real faith? Well, Jesus prayed in the next verse, verse 32, Luke. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Now, Peter's faith did not fail. And that, that is a, a great and awesome story as he become the great preacher in Acts. He preached to thousands and stood up to the authorities and uh, did what he should have done for the Lord rather than be intimidated by the authorities. But here in chapter 26 of Matthew, Peter stumbles. We know about his denial. And I want to look at this this morning in this way. I want to examine why it was Peter denied his Lord three times. And what, what left him vulnerable to the temptations that produced that when just a few hours before he drew a sword and was willing to, in a single-handed way to fend off an overwhelming mob of armed soldiers in the garden. What took him from, he was a courageous man to do that. It took a lot of courage. What, what, what happened between that and his denial in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house? What was it that precipitated that? What was it that made him vulnerable at that moment? Now, we, in a like manner, will be and, and we will face, and we'll be in and we will face situations that will leave us vulnerable, just like Peter was at that juncture. So we need to identify the situation, the circumstances of the moment, and what it was that left him weak and vulnerable in the face of this temptation. And so that's what we want to do, looking at chapter 26, beginning at verse 57. Let's see if we can get an outline here. There we go. The first circumstance, the first situation, the first identifiable set of circumstances that led to his vulnerability was he was alone. And we are most vulnerable when we are alone. Now, I, I do not mean by that necessarily that we're totally separated from other people. What I do mean for, by that is that we are isolated from others who believe as we do and who can encourage us and strengthen us and help us in the face of that temptation. An aloneness in that sense. The only two men in this whole group of people observing the trial trans, uh, that was transpiring here at Caiaphas, the high priest's house, was Peter and John, the other disciple. And, and John, we know, somehow used some influence with somebody he knew to get Peter entrance into that courtyard. Then nothing more is said of John. Uh, he evidently is not with Peter at this juncture. So in verse 57, we read this, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. So Peter was present. He was out in the courtyard, 
Christ was being tried in an inner court or perhaps inside a building. There was many people that hated Jesus gathered in that courtyard, fires going to stay warm. Peter there, it says, to see the end. He was alone. He was isolated. And when we are isolated spiritually from others who believe as we do and who will encourage us and strengthen us and stand with us, we are very, very vulnerable. We need the strength of others in the body of Christ. Any time that we are in the presence of those who do not believe as we do, do not act as we do, do not, do not live a life that would be acceptable to God, we have put ourselves in a position of danger. Peter here was literally with the wrong crowd at a very, very critical moment. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 where Paul wrote this. He said, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits or good morals, it says in some interpretations. When we as God's people, even though we we have the presence of the Holy Spirit and we have the, the strength of God thereby and we have the word of God to live by and an understanding. We still will find ourselves weak when we are in wrong company. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, everyday interactions with people at work or whatever. I'm talking about literally spending an amount of time around people that are doing the wrong thing that will have an influence on us. Let's go to Psalm 1 in verse 1 for another cross-reference in regard to this. Psalm 1, 1, the way of the righteous and the end of the ungodly. That's, that's a kind of a summary statement of introduction put on that. But here's verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. You don't listen to what other people are telling you you should do. You don't walk in your counsel. Nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. We are in danger when we are literally in the wrong crowd and we fall prey to their influence in our life. So the first situation, the first identifiable situation that leaves us vulnerable to temptation is when we are alone. The second situation that we need to identify is simply this. We are also vulnerable when we are misguided misguided. Now, I, I searched all week for the right word here, and I finally determined to use this word misguided, but it's still going to involve some uh, explanation here as to what I'm talking about. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. Peter, and I suspect all the rest of the twelve, never really accepted the fact that Christ was headed to the cross. They heard it, he told them over and over, but they denied it in their heart and mind. They wouldn't accept it on the emotional level. Let's go back to chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 2. This is on a Wednesday before his crucifixion on Friday. He says to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus said, you already know this. <laughs> hey, this wasn't the first time he said it. 
He had told them multiple times previous to this. But just in the last three days of his life, he says it in chapter 26, verse 2. He refers to it in chapter 26, verse 12, where he spoke of Mary's offering of the fragrant oil. On my body, he said, she did this for my burial. So he references it there. That was on Sunday previous to the crucifixion on Friday. Drop down to chapter 26 and verse 28. And where he instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover feast, he says what? For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. He plainly talked about his death, his crucifixion over and over and over on a repeated basis. Chapter 26, verse 32, when he tells them, uh, or just after he tells them they're all going to stumble, he says uh, this, he says in verse 32, but after I have been raised... I will go before you to Galilee. Well, only people that have died are resurrected. So uh, he talked about it all the time. He referred to it in multiple instances this very week. But Peter never really seemed to get the message. He didn't, it didn't soak in. It, it, it didn't get beyond his emotional attachment, his, his inner attitude or thinking or hope or Assurance that he felt he had that Jesus Christ had not come to die on a cross, but he had come to establish the kingdom and cast off the Roman rule. That's why he pulled a sword in the garden when they come to arrest Jesus. He had some confidence there that he was making the right choice and that these armed, you know, armed enemies had to be dealt with and that it was the right thing to do. Now, Jesus told him to put up the sword, and we discussed why uh, last week. We won't repeat that. But I wanted to push it back to uh, John 18, 6, which we also looked at last week. Uh, in John 18, 6, just before Peter drew the sword, when the, the, the arresters, the, the, the crowd, the, the chief priests, the elders, the Roman soldiers, all the rest came to arrest him, uh, they asked him, about his identity, and he said, what? I am. Now, the he is in italics, not in the original. He said, I am. A clear reference to his deity, going back to the wording that God gave Moses in Exodus to tell the people who it was that sent him to bring them out of Egypt. And what happened? They all drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus just spoke a word. One word. In the Greek, I am. Two in the English. And the whole group of soldiers and the chief priests and the elders and the servants, they fell literally backwards to the ground. This was this had to have been in Peter's mind, because the next thing he does, he pulls the sword. Yeah, now he was he was pretty courageous, but he had to also, you know, he wasn't absolutely an idiot. You know, he wasn't going to, I don't think he thought he could kill them all. But with Christ behind him, if Christ can can fell the whole bunch with a word. Uh, I think I'll pull my sword and when, as they're getting back up, I can, you know, maybe convince them they better stay down. <laughs> Whatever this reasoning was. <coughs> he was anxious <coughs> to bring about the establishment of Christ's kingdom on earth and, and for the Romans to be thrown out of Israel and for all the Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom to come into the very uh, present moment. But Jesus reprimanded him. Jesus said, put away the sword. You don't understand. Not only did Peter have that, but <clears throat> on Palm Sunday, which is the day we celebrate today, Palm Sunday, he saw Jesus enter into Jerusalem 
And uh, the, the thousands throwing palm branches in their garments in front of him, singing Hosanna. And, and that, they were recognizing him as the Messiah. This is all, all in Peter's mind. This is what is at the forefront of his mind. And not only that, but even prior to that, he saw Jesus just a few days ago bring the dead out of a tomb in the person of Lazarus and restore him to life. <coughs> what power Jesus had and could have brought to bear to bring in the kingdom. So now let's go to chapter 26 of Matthew again at verse 58, at the end of the verse. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. I don't think that means that Peter went there so he could see him condemn Jesus and put him on a cross. Peter had a different end in mind. He wanted to, he thought, well, okay, uh, it wasn't in the garden, but uh, if, if Jesus can speak a word and knock down that crowd, I mean, who knows what he's going to do when, the, when, the, when they really, you know, uh, are ready to condemn him. But it didn't happen. And so Peter was left disappointed, disillusioned, confused, discouraged, distraught, devastated, mentally. All because he was misguided in his own thoughts. He had a wrong concept of what God was doing, what the will of God was at this moment. We have an incredible ability as human beings, even as Christians who trust in Christ, we, we have this incredible tendency to just think we get up and everything's going to be, go great today. You, you know what I'm talking about? You get up in the morning, oh, it's a new day, you know, I got these plans, and I, you know, this is going to happen, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, it, you soon realize, as we do every day, that it, it doesn't take long to our day changes. Because life doesn't go smooth as we think it's going to. And we face challenges, we face problems, we, we face uh, issues, and, and, you know, and things just begin to unravel. And then we turn around, just like Peter must have been in this instance in a much greater and in a more in-depth way, we get a little frustrated at life, and in particular without maybe mentioning it or even thinking it through at God. God, you're supposed to make everything okay. As, as I want okay. As, as Lord, surely you can see that it's okay. That's what's needed. But that's not what happened. And when we become disappointed, disillusioned, because we're misguided, then we are in danger of getting so frustrated and angry with God that we are vulnerable to sin at that moment. That's where Peter's at. That's the second identifiable circumstance of this night that made him vulnerable to the temptation. But let's move to the temptation itself. Let's talk about one, seem to be missing a slide, brother, somehow. Anyway, you got it in your bulletin there. Uh, the third identifiable situation is this. It's when we are afraid. When we are afraid. Now, we can read the whole account of the, uh, of the denial of Peter. And not, nothing is said here about him being afraid. But... There's no other explanation for his denial. 
No other reason for his denial other than that he's fearful of his own life. I mean, Jesus is being tried in front of him. Jesus is being condemned. Jesus is being uh, abused and falsely accused, and everything is unraveling. Everything is good. And if if Peter associates himself with Jesus at this point, that's what's awaiting him. It's obvious that he was fearful. Now, fear is an emotion. It's a natural response. You walk up on a a big old bear out on a hiking trail and and he raises up on two hind legs. You're afraid. You, you, You know, don't tell me you're not. Peter's afraid. It's not the fear that's the problem. It's the fear is the circumstance or situation that will lead to the problem. If not handled right. So let's look at it. Chapter 26 at verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. Now, a couple of things stand out here. First of all, the temptation itself comes from an unexpected source. I mean, Peter is in there. He's, he's around people that, that hate Jesus. Uh, I don't know if this is the case, but he might have just kind of shied away from the men a little bit. Maybe, you know put himself in a situation that was maybe a little bit less dangerous? I don't know. Could be. Doesn't say that. But we do know this. The temptation came through a servant girl. I mean, he just stood up to, up to maybe what would have been, or could have been a thousand armed men, and now he can't stand up to the accusation of a servant girl. And it also says, that the servant girl came to him saying. That's a present tense participle, which means she didn't just say this once. She, she came to him saying this. You were one of them, weren't you? I know you were one of them, weren't you? Surely you're one of them. You know, it, it, I mean, he didn't just melt at the first time she asked, but it, it's becoming obvious as she continues to say this that other people are starting to notice. If Satan has maneuvered Peter into a situation where it's, it's dangerous, he, he's, he's fearful, his anxiety level is just mounting by the moment, and he responds in the wrong way. You've heard of the, the flight or fight syndrome, you know, if, if, if uh, you're in a dangerous situation uh, and you experience a, a rush of adrenaline and you either have a tendency to Run or fight? Well, Peter didn't run. It would have been a good idea. He didn't. He couldn't fight. I mean, he'd already been reprimanded for even thinking about that one. But you see, there's a, there's a third response when we are frightened. And that's becoming paralyzed, doing nothing. And, and I think as she did this, Peter was just like, he didn't know what to do. And 
did nothing, and, and she continued to make the accusation, and, and finally, he is, he is so disturbed, he's so fearful, he says what he says. I do not know what you're saying. We are far more vulnerable to temptation when we are experiencing negative emotions. And when we are tempted and put in situations in particular where we're frightened, we are very, very vulnerable. Now, the, the fear factor may just be, well, you know, someone will, someone will make fun of me or somebody will point me out or uh, somebody will be, not be my friend any longer. It, it may not be anything as, as serious or of such a magnitude as what Peter faced here, but it's the same scenario. Now, when faced with fear, oftentimes, if we don't respond in the right way, we make regrettable choices, and that's exactly what Peter's doing here. So, number one, we saw that. Let's move on to number two in verse 71. And when he had gone out to the gateway. Now, now <clears throat> after this first denial, Peter kind of backs off from that group. And he gets a little further away. In fact, he gets probably as far away as he can, but he still stays within the confines of the courtyard. There's still people around him. Maybe he's hoping that now the ones around him will not make the connection. Now, he should have he just went on out the door. I mean, it's one thing to be caught off guard, and he was caught off guard, especially the, the accusation coming from the servant girl. You know what that old saying is? You hear people say, you know, what's the definition of insanity? To keep doing the same thing and expect a different result? <laughs> well, uh, he wasn't insane, but uh, he was spiritually vulnerable, for sure. Look at it. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, it's not a present tense verb here. It's called an imperfect verb in the Greek. But an imperfect in the Greek just means the same thing as the present tense, only it just, Peter, it's the way Matthew writes it here, looking in the past. It's the present tense occurring in a past occurrence. So this girl also repeated the same accusation, and the more she talked, the more she said to other people, isn't he one of them? Isn't that guy? And again, Satan maneuvered him right into the same trap a second time. Verse 72, but again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Now, this is a Jewish oath that was taken before God. This is something they did to confirm the testimony and so forth. So he basically is saying, and you've heard people say it like this, okay? May God strike me dead if it's said the truth. You ever heard that? Yeah, we have. That's basically what he's doing. He's calling God Almighty to confirm his words, which are definitely a lie. God knows it. It makes absolutely zero sense, except that he's trying to cover up who he was. So Peter is falling to a very low point here. Well, let's go on. Verse 73. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, now this time it's not the servant girl, it's just... People, other men, I assume, in this case, came up and said to Peter, Surely you are also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Well, he was from Galilee, and 
Galileans to the north spoke distinctly different from those that lived in Judea in the south and Jerusalem's in the south, and that's where he's at. And it was easily a, a, a discernible that he was a Galilean. They all knew what Galileans sound like. Uh, you might say he had a Galilean accent. So it, he's accused a third time. Look, of, look at the response, verse 74. Then he began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know the man. Now, when we read this curse and swear, we think that Peter was just being a good sailor. After all, he was a fisherman, so, you know, we figure that's something just, you know, he would revert to. That's not what it's talking about. It's not profane language. It's an extension of that thought mentioned on the second one when he took that oath. In fact, the word here translated to curse, he is, he is simply saying, may God strike me dead. Before God, if I'm lying, uh, may God condemn me. That's what he's saying. It's that kind of curse he's pronouncing on himself if he's not speaking the truth. And the word swear here is just another word that was used of the same type of process. So he, he is using traditional Jewish means of calling God as his witness that he's telling the truth. That's all that is. Which is probably a whole lot worse than swearing in the way we think of swearing, okay? Uh, in a profane way. So... Peter has experienced a stumble, a fall. Jesus told him he was going to. Back in verse 34, Jesus said to him, And surely I say unto you this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. That was after Jesus said, that was after Peter said, uh, Even if I die, I, 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 won't, uh, I won't desert you. I won't stumble. Jesus said, Yeah, you're going you're to deny me before, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me. This night, three times. And then we read here at the end of verse 34, after he has denied Jesus the third time, it says immediately the rooster crowed. Now the rooster was crowing because it's early in the morning by this point in time, and that's what roosters do early in the morning, I assume. So it's a miracle of timing or a prophetic uh certainty in the timing, either that or the rooster crowed a lot earlier than he would have. I don't know. But it, 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 it was a sign given to him by God. We also know that besides the rooster crowing that brought conviction, that in John it says that when he made his third denial that Jesus looked at him. Now Jesus would have been removed from him for a... I mean, as far as Peter knew, he didn't even know if Jesus knew where he was. It's like... Jesus is facing his accusers, maybe in, a, in a, another room, and you see through an open window, or maybe a, another area of the courtyard. And as soon as this happens, Jesus turns and looks at him. Ooh, that's what Jesus does to us every time <laughs> we fail him, doesn't he? Only it's in our heart, through the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter denied the Lord, and by the way, we do too every time we sin. That's what sin is. Sin is a denial of our Lord. It's a denial of His Lordship. So we're no better than He when we sin, no matter what the sin is. But Peter was forgiven. God used him in a great and mighty way in the early church, preaching to the multitudes in Jerusalem, standing up boldly before the same scribes and <laughs> 
Pharisees and elders that condemned Jesus because his faith didn't fail. When he was sifted, he stumbled, but his faith never failed. He was a true believer. And when we stumble, it's not the end for us either. If we truly trust in Christ, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to sin, we're going to deny our Lord, but there is still faith in God. is a loving, forgiving God, and He's got great work for us to do, even after we stumble. But I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 for a moment as we come to a conclusion. Because Peter wrote this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, many, many years later he wrote this, under the inspired uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's still Peter. He says, be sober, be vigilant. <laughs> what that means, it means watch out. What did Jesus say to him in the garden at night? He said, Jesus said, watch, didn't he? Remember, chapter 26, in the garden, verse 40, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. He wasn't watching, he wasn't praying, he was sleeping. Now Peter is saying to us the same thing Jesus said to him that night in the garden before all this happened. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter was sifted, the lion caught up with him, wasn't able to devour him, literally, but to devour him as far as getting him to sin, yes. But it says the devil walks about like a roaring lion. Now, a lion, a male lion, roars to warn off other male lions because he has a territory that he commands and will allow other uh, male lions into that territory. So a roaring lion, that just simply refers to the biggest, the meanest, the baddest guy around, Okay. And Satan is a roaring lion. He is the leader of a whole host of fallen angels that are demons that he commands. But he is the head, the most powerful, and the most uh, prodigious one. So that's all that means. Don't think that, that Satan comes up to you roaring in your face and intimidating you and, and so that you understand what's happening. No, he slips up on you and you don't know it till it's too late. That's how lions kill prey. That's how lions are able to kill an antelope that can clearly outrun them through stealth. They arrive unannounced, they conceal themselves, and in a moment they spring on their prey. That's what Satan does to us. So we have to be ready. We have to watch. So here's what the situations are. I think... <laughs> it's not, I don't know what's happened, but my slides worked perfectly in the first service, but now uh, I probably punched the wrong button somewhere. Never mind. Uh, here's what I want you to get from this. And, and as in a summary, I'm changing the wording a little bit, but these are the three points in the sermon. I'm just making them a little bit more practical, and this is probably a good thing for you to write down. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, watch, be careful. The lion's out there, Satan's out there, and temptation's coming. So what do we watch? What are the situations? Number one, watch whom you are around. That doesn't mean you shouldn't associate or ever talk to or be friendly with an unbeliever. It just means that you shouldn't spend all your time with them, especially in circumstances where you're going to be tempted. Number two, watch what you are thinking. Yeah, when you're not in sync with the will of God, when you're not in sync with the Word of God, when you're not thinking biblically, when you're not 
trusting in the Lord Jesus at that moment, when your thinking is selfish, when you're looking for God to do something for you rather than you do something for God, you're in a vulnerable spot. Watch what you were thinking. And then number three, watch the level of your anxiety. When you are fearful, when you're full of anxiety, be careful. If you respond wrong, you will yield to temptation. Let that be a warning when you are anxious, when you're fearful. Go back to the Word. Seek counsel from other believers. Go to the Lord in prayer. Be watchful. So this is what we learned from this, well, very familiar instance in Scripture. But yet there's so much for us there on a practical basis. 